you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me on The Moment. I'm Chris Epting and... uh, have a very special guest today we're going to get to in just a minute. I want to remind everybody that all of the previous episodes of The Moment are available for download at iTunes, on Stitcher, Spotify, wherever audio is basically available. You can find some great conversations with everybody from Todd Rundgren to Anson Williams to Loretta Swit to John Oates to a whole bunch of people that I've been very thankful uh, to speak to. And um, today's guest actually is somebody I really wanted to talk to. Some of you may know. I executive produce and co-host a show on the Reels channel called It Happened Here, where we focus on a different celebrity and sort of break their life down geographically into points of interest where things happen to their life along the way, the actual sites on the map. And one of the, I think, the strongest episodes we did was on um, the legendary comedian Richard Pryor. What made the episode, I think, so compelling is that Richard Pryor's son, Richard Pryor Jr., was actually the primary interview that uh, that we used in the show. And I just thought he was so compelling and was really excited to learn about his new book just out called Any Prior Life, out from Bear Manor Media. And I read it this week. I uh, thought it was very compelling and, and, and really dramatic. And I'm super excited to have Richard Pryor Jr. as a guest today. Richard, are you there? I'm here. All right, man. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. I And congratulations oh. on the book. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Richard, what's it like? I mean, you know, as one who's written books with with other celebrities kind of co-writing memoirs, I know how, um, you know, that point where you finally decide to do it, it, there can be a lot of stress involved with realizing you're going to sort of put it all out there. What was it like for you just leading up to the book? Um, You include a lot of, we're going to get to stuff, but some really um, colorful, interesting stuff. What was it like for you leading up to this, knowing you were going to put all of this out there? Was it nervous? Were you nervous about it? Yeah, well, I tried to attempted to start writing this book two, two other times, and I had right. to put it down because it was so difficult to me. <clears throat> but uh, this time, it was like I had a piece about myself. I knew it was going to be um, uh, very uh, emotional for me in some way. I knew that, but I was willing to go through the process because I thought my story was an important story to tell. Mm-hmm. The book is called In a Prior Life by Richard Pryor Jr. It's now available on uh, Amazon, wherever books are sold. The BearManorMedia.com website's got it as well. And, you know, for people that don't know, I mean, Richard, your, your life really from the moment you entered the world, uh, there have been a lot of hurdles and a lot of challenges. I mean, straight straight up with your birth. I mean, you, you really, it's, 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 you know, that you're still here in a lot of ways is amazing to me with all the things you've had to confront what was your childhood like why don't you paint the picture for people who may not know what it was like to grow up um to be born actually as richard Pryor's son well i um deal with two sides of the coin on my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family um my mother my father's side of the family you know my great-grandmother she was a madam ran uh, uh, two brothels actually um his mother was a uh, prostitute and (laughs) my grandfather was a pimp and uh, they were also bootleggers as well, um, always in something that had to do with money. 
Um, <laughs> my mother's side of the family, I thought was the normal side until really, until I sat down and started really writing and realized it was dysfunctional as well, but not as uh, severe. Um, you right. know, with alcoholism on that side of the family more so than the, you know, the bootlegging and all those things. Um, you know, I went through a, p- a period when I was really young when my grandfather murdered a man and had to deal with that. And I carried that for years and didn't realize I carried it for years. So I went through a process of examining myself and the things I've gone through to try to heal myself and to make myself better. So my whole life has been like a roller coaster up and down. A lot of it, uh, because of uh, what I came out of, but also a lot of it was self-induced, um, trying to find your way and trying to be your own person and um, going in the wrong directions in order to achieve that. Well, it's interesting because in reading your book, I, you know, you, you, I know you say it's self-induced, but I think it's pretty amazing given the background uh, and the foundation you just described that you've even been able to come out and come to grips. I mean, once the book was finished, was it cathartic? Was it therapeutic? Did you feel better after the book? When you finally made the, the, the last edit and turned it in, w- was the feeling good? Did you feel like you had sort of you know, confronted things that had been haunting you for a long time? I definitely was uh, felt, uh, th- it definitely felt therapeutic to me. Um, I was able to release a lot of things, a lot of, you know, anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of sorrow that I had. Um, it was able, it was just giving me, it was uplifting to me uh, after writing the book. It was kind of a thing where I felt like I was starting to float. I felt a lot better about things that I'd gone through. I was able to, even my mother's death, which I took me years to deal with and didn't realize I was still struggling with, Writing this book actually helped me come a lot of that darkness uh, that I still had, had in my life. I think it's interesting. You write very um, eloquently about your complicated relationship with your dad, but I really think it's your relationship with your mom that becomes the anchor in the book. And I, I, I think that's a very important piece of your story. As famous and, and respected and revered as your dad was and is, you, the story with your mom is really kind of a book within a book. And I think that's a very that relationship really seems to uh, to be something special and important for you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was my idea. That was what I wanted more than anything because I sh- share a, a lot of things, you know, with the public as far as, you know, when they already ask about my dad, but I share about my mother and the love I had for my mother and what she did for me and how she was there for me. And being able to share that and put that in, in print, you know, about how important she was to my life. It wasn't just my father. It was my mother who was really the anchor of my life. Well, that's. I think that comes through loud and clear. And again, I thought that was the really nice surprise in the book. I mean, look, it was. It's always interesting to read, sort of behind the scenes details about someone like a Richard Pryor. But uh, but yeah, your mom being there for you again. I, I I really think that's a huge reason that you were even allowed to to survive a lot of these really tumultuous moments. Richard, what are a couple of moments early on that you remember uh, as as a young person before you came out to California, where you felt the the biggest challenges in your life, say as a teenager? Well, I think my challenges. Uh, one of my challenges were knowing who my friends were. That was a uh-huh. huge thing in my life because I had people constantly around me that were considered my friends that I thought were friends, but they were in it for gain. So, you know, they would, you know, I had one friend who, you know, sold information to the National Choir about me, um, uh-huh. who I thought was extremely close to me. Um, then going through my sexual identity crisis, going through those things. And then also when I started writing this book, realizing that when I was a teenager, 
when I was um, in these relationships with guys and then realizing that I was molested. You know, that yeah. these were grown men and I was a teenager and I really didn't look at it that way until I started writing about the things that I'd gone through and how those things affected me uh, in my life. And one of the things that was important when I told Ron Barr, who helped co-write this book, is that I wanted it to not just be about my dad. I didn't want that because I had so much more to tell other than my father. So I really wanted to make, maybe, you know, stress that uh, fact um, as far as uh, my life is concerned. Well, again, I think you strike strong balances with everything. It's clearly your story and your experiences and your dad and your mom and other characters throughout the story are are a reflection of what you're going through. But yeah, the molestation, the abuse that you suffered as a young person is is really, you know, it's it's, it's sort of horrific to read about. And I, you know, I wondered about the effects it had on you. You've got family members who are, you know, you're dealing with it or sort of coming after you. And, and then, you know, so your dad, now he leaves the house when you're fairly young, right? Right, correct. Yeah, I was really, really young. And so you get to observe his rise, his ascension. You're sort of learning about the way a lot of people did. You're watching television. You're, you're watching the success happen um, the way many fans of his did. Yet you always there was always a bond there. It wasn't like you weren't in touch for really long periods, right? Right, correct, correct, definitely, without a doubt. And then when you when you first come out to California, when do you when do you really see firsthand uh, the fame and and maybe even the struggles your dad is going through? Is it when you first come out to L.A. and you kind of go to that first house on the stilts that you talk about up in the Hollywood Hills? Yeah. Well, when I first went out there, it was a thing of not I'm not really understanding what your father is as far as to the world, as uh-huh. far as uh, you know his 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 work and everything. Just seeing him as dad, but being out there at that time, I was probably in the tennis range somewhere in that area when I was able right. to travel. And I think being there, uh, it kind of opened my eyes up when you see people wanting to be around someone, you're wondering what it is, you know, what, what, what's going on because you're not still seeing it like that. I've already seen them on film, but I'm still not seeing it as, as uh, you know, a star. Um, I, and I didn't realize my father really was a star until he went to Billy D Williams house and I was starstruck over that. And my father then asked me, you know, why wasn't I like that with him? And yeah. then it kind of hit me, you know. Like, well, my dad's a star too, you know, and I really didn't didn't grasp it until I was out there in, in the in the industry and would really open my eyes. up was when I started touring with him when I was probably like twelve, thirteen. Um, I toured with him and we introduced him on stage and just seeing the crowds and the audiences uh, that were there just to see him. That had to be really something at that age when you're seeing firsthand, because at that point, I mean, your dad is really a cultural force of nature. I mean, what he's doing, he's breaking ground and breaking down walls left and right in a way that I think really liberated a lot of people that came after him in terms of stand-up comedy. I mean, he's he certainly, you know, paved the way uh, for others to, to follow, and, you know, he took the hits, you know, and that, that you were there and able to experience it. Let me ask you, what, what was it like over those years between... Between he and your mom, even though they were split, describe you know the connection they still may have had while you were growing up. My mother and father kept a relationship uh, as far as speaking and in contact and talking over the phone, all those things up until uh, I think it was around about the two years before, two or three years before she passed away. Um, I remember that I was cut off from seeing my father from his wife, Jennifer. 
And after that time, my mother was diagnosed with cancer the following year, which was in 2002. And, you know, she was asking me, you know, call your dad. I just want to talk to him one more time. And it was to no avail. Um, Nothing happened. He never knew about my mother passing. Uh, So prior to that, he was always there and always took care of her if she needed anything, whatever. They remained friends. And it was very hurtful at the end when she passed away and then me having to see my father two years later and telling him um, that my mother had passed, you know, just to see it in his face and the tears in his eyes, uh, finding that information out was very, um, it broke my heart. My guest is Richard Pryor, Jr. He's talking about his powerful new memoir, Just Out. It's called In a Prior Life from Bear Manor Media. Richard, I really like the way you structure the book um, where it's it's more about short anecdotal stories, very punchy, you know, not uh, long, seamless, unending chapters, but it really, it's a real collection of memories, which to me is what a good memoir is. It's, it's, it's broken down into these moments, you know, and what was it like for you to begin cataloging all of those moments? Because it's, it's great. It's like you, you can pick up the book really anywhere and read, if you've got time, you know, a quick short story or 20 pages or 50 pages. Tell me about the idea in terms of how you format it. Well, it was a thing that I wanted it to tell a story. You know, I, I wanted people, people to read it and not want to put it down, which uh, I'm hearing that that's the effect that it's having on a lot of people. That they were uh-huh. to read through the book. I've had quite a few people that have, you know, read it in one sitting because it's so interesting. And the, I didn't want the, uh, the chapters really long. I didn't want it drawn out or anything like that, but I wanted it to paint, paint a picture. And the process of going through that was, First, I came up with like 133 points that I may have wanted to talk about. And uh-huh. out of those things, I talked about those and then decided narrowing down which, was the most, which were the most important things to actually put in the book and how I could expand on those things and, and describe them so that people understand, they could feel what I was going through and feel what was I enduring during that time and my footsteps during those moments. Well, I think I think that design really works to the book's credit, and it, it does. Um, it, there's a pacing to it. It's ve- it's very fast paced, and it never really lets up. And I think that's just what your life has been. I mean, honestly, there's no lull. I mean, it seems like there's always been something, for better or worse, that's been happening. And it's been, uh, you know, like you say, it's been, it's been a roller coaster, but it's uh, it's really been never ending. You know, you, you there's a very interesting scene in the book when you talk about your high school graduation when your dad comes back for that to Peoria, Illinois and there's a, a lot of attention paid him and it sort of takes away from the event, right? Yeah, it totally took away. It, it was it was very difficult because you're watching, you know, parents and everything, their children are graduating and they're busy taking pictures of him and looking at him and his reactions and what he's doing versus watching the ceremony something that only happens once in a lifetime from somebody graduating from high school. And it kind of took away from that. It took away so much that I know when I got married, my father didn't come to my wedding uh, because he knew that. And he knew what it was about, and he knew it would take away from that moment in my life. So, yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a tough thing to go through that and actually see that thing. I mean, it was exciting to have him there because he's your dad. But on the flip side of uh, the outcome as far as, the way people acted and uh, responded to it was a negative way for the ceremony itself. 
It's interesting when celebrity becomes a real straitjacket like that, that it doesn't even allow somebody to, uh, and, I, and I think, I don't know what you think, but I think that probably still exists to some degree today. There are people that if they show up at any event, it's going to create a distraction to the point where it becomes almost bigger than the actual event that they're attending. Oh, definitely. I totally agree with it. Um, Richard, we're going to take a break in just a second here. When I come back, when we come back here in a minute, I want to talk about, uh, you know, some of the, you know, the, the part that drugs have played in your life, but I think it's incredible you've been able to overcome what you went through. It's a lot of things your dad went through too, and there's a, again, very complicated father-son relationship that is fueled by a lot of the same chemicals, and uh, you were able to survive it. I think, I think your, I do think your book in, in a prior life, I do think it's a survivor story. I think it's very inspirational for people that are not just obviously children of celebrities, but people that go through their own issues and their own hurdles. We're going to get to that in a minute. My name is Chris Epting. My special guest today is Richard Pryor Jr. We're discussing his brand new memoir, In a Prior Life, just out from Bear Manor Media. Richard, sit tight. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Chris Epting. This is the moment. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. We are back. I am Chris Epting, joined today by a very special guest, Richard Pryor Jr., who has a brand new memoir out called In a Prior Life. And I've just read it, and we were just chatting offline a little bit here. And I was saying to Richard, uh, and I'll say it to you now again, Richard, that I'm really impressed that you uh, – you're very revealing in this. Oftentimes, celebrity memoirs will sort of keep you at arm's length. And I think it's, to me, the ones that succeed the best are the ones where you can tell that the author really decided to come clean, to strip away all of the pretense and, and, and you know, produce truth here. And I think you've confronted a lot of truth here. It's raw, it's real, and it's, uh, it's very impressive what you've done here. 
Thank you so much. I wanted it when this book working with Ron, what I wanted was it to be the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh-huh. No matter at what cost. If it made me look bad, I still wanted it in there. Because I wanted people to know that, you know, people aren't perfect. People do things that are wrong. People make mistakes. They, they screw up totally. Uh, but there are also some good things that happen out of those things. And going through that, uh, the thing in life that we call life and everything, going through those struggles and all those things that make us who we are today. So it was important to put all those things in there, good and bad. Well, that's where I think it becomes less of like a celebrity memoir and more of, again, when you present a survivor's tale like this, this can really, I think a book like this has the potential to help anybody that's gone through, say, addictions or dysfunctional families. It it almost doesn't matter. I think the way the book comes across to me anyhow is that it doesn't matter that that you're the son of a famous comedian. What matters is that you're a human being that was able to survive and thrive after after the fact, after the things that you went through. That's exactly what I wanted. I appreciate the hearing that. That's exactly what I was going for. Well, well, I, I think you hit it. Um, I mean, that said, you know, it's fascinating to me is when you come out to California, you know, your, you know, your dad had a you know, fairly well publicized, um, you know, addiction to cocaine and it's something that that you eventually get into as well and i think you write about it again it's very honest it's very frank it's also very scary how you got how you succumbed to this what was it like for you back then to know what you were doing to have seen what the what the uh ramifications may have been but to still do it i mean that really it had to be a very scary time for you as well yeah it was actually extremely horrible (laughs) Uh, going through it because you're at a point where you can't stop yourself and you know it's wrong and you know what it does and you know what it looks like, but you're doing things that you said you would never, ever do. You're putting things in your body you said you would never put in your body, things you would never try, you're doing those things. Um, I think what it was at the beginning of the thing where I thought I was doing things to, hey, Dad, I'm just like you. I'm being like you in a sick, twisted kind of way of yeah. trying to be like somebody but then not knowing how it's killing me on the inside and it's changing who I was totally. Well, that's fascinating because I, it's funny you say that because there is this thing where, you know, all, you know, young men and little boys, whatever, they want to emulate their dad. Like in a perfect world, that's the ultimate role Mm -hmm. model, right? And, And it felt like that's what you were doing. I mean, yes, your dad was very funny, very charismatic, very impactful culturally, but he also had these other habits that you gradually um, mimicked at a certain point. And it's funny True. that you, you describe, there's some points, I think some of the most powerful points in your book are when you call him almost out of distress. When you're going through, when you're really high and you don't know where to turn, you call him and he knows what you're going through. I mean, it's it's kind of weird, yeah. but you just, you have this sense that he knows exactly where you're at because he's either been there or he's there at that moment when you call him, right? Totally correct. (laughs) Totally correct. Like the time when I was shooting up, yeah, it was that kind of moment when I was shooting up and I called him and trying to get some kind of response from him, but he was so calm that it it just irritated me and aggravated me even more because I wasn't getting what I needed and what I thought I needed at that time from him. You know, it was as sick and twisted as it is. You know, we want that love and we want that attention. And when you're not still feeling that you're not getting it the right way, you do anything that's necessary at times, at least in my case, 
to try to achieve that. Yeah, that I mean that right there. That that's such a that's such an important part of the book. The book is in a prior life, by the way. I'm talking with Richard Pryor Jr. And and I mean, look, we're covering little parts of the book here. I, I have to tell you, this book is loaded with these stories. I mean, every page, it's just it's relentless in terms of you know what you're going through. I think another really important aspect of of and again, you're you're very clear in revealing these things. Was your sexual identity and how complicated right. that became? I mean, that yeah. honestly, Richard, is like another book within a book of how. Yeah. And I think it's very relevant in today's day and age of the pressures that people feel when they have certain urges and certain desires that they may feel insecure about. And you're very blunt about what you were going through. Why don't you describe for people what it was like for you, your kind of sexual awakening, and and when what you went through well i know when i first of all when i was a teenager the things that i did you know messing around with the older men and things of that nature and having that attraction for the persons of the same sex and everything those are things that you you try to squash and try to keep them inside right and my thing was you know i joined the military so me thinking that the military is going to help me to become a man it only added fire fuel to the fire because it was rampant in the military when I was in the Navy. It was rampant. It was everywhere. So it was a thing where, you know, you're still fighting those urges and everything, but then you're still giving in at certain points, and then you're beating yourself up um, because of it. I remember one time when I got in there, first started doing female impersonating, I remember that I was standing in the mirror, and, couldn't, and I hated what I was looking at, and I remember trying to cut my wrist. And just looking at myself in the mirror and how much I hated myself um, for what I had become. And not understanding that uh, I could be my own person. I could, I could love who I wanted to. And, and regardless of what people thought and what they felt and everything, I still had to live my life. And then I've learned, you know, through the years and uh, now, but to now that, you know, I don't put uh, things in my life on a on a clipboard saying this is the way I have to be and this is what I have to do. I live it's my funny. life the way I feel I should live live it. You know, when you um when you talk about being in the military, you also describe this is sort of a point, it's kind of the don't ask, don't tell era, right? It was a very Right. You know, it was a complicated point in, in, in our nation's history. And the female impersonation piece, there seems to be a real joy. I mean, there's photos, great photos in the book. But the way you describe getting into that, it was almost like you found this space that you were really, I mean, creatively satisfied with. And there was a real joy to that. Did it feel like that when you discovered that as a creative outlet? Oh, definitely. It was a way I could be creative and, and be someone else because... Richard himself is an introvert, pretty quiet, kind of shy at times. But that was a way for me to be someone else, totally different. And to me, it was all acting. It was how you can be an entertainer, how you can perform, how you can shock, and how you can do all these things that people didn't expect to come out of you. And that's what I was doing. And that's what I loved about it because it was so therapeutic. It was very... Uh, it let out that energy and all those things that we want to feel, the endorphins and all those things that we want when we're on stage in front of people. I received that doing that. 
What was it like when you when you shared, you know, this outlet that you had in terms of your mom and dad? Were you nervous about letting them know about this? Did you feel they were going to accept it? What was it like at that point um, to well, to let your folks know? Yeah, that was that was pretty difficult because them finding out about it. I remember my I had asked my my aunt and my mother. They came to one of my shows finally, so that was a relief. They saw it and they enjoyed the show and everything. But I think with the turning point was where it became a, a sour situation was when a friend of mine outed me to the world um, and to the tabloid. And I think that made it so negative during that time where it was something I didn't want to do anymore and I couldn't do anymore. And I had to give this up because now it's involved my family and my sister is going to school. They're being affected by it, being teased by it. My mother receiving letters in the mail about how many girls she had. I mean, all those things came about. So it was very um, detrimental and very, um, it just messed with my mind so much that I I couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and you you include those images of what the tabloids did, and it's like I it really there was something I think very distasteful about the fact that the way it was presented in the tabloids was um it, it was an, more of an attack than it was a revelation. And Yes, it was. They were really trying to stir the pot, obviously, and it was, I don't know really to what end. You were doing, you were comfortable with what you were doing. Um, your parents were, were okay with it. I mean, even your dad, right? I mean, he, I yeah. mean, talk about his reaction because I thought it was interesting that he sort of got a kick out of it, didn't he? Yeah, my, and my father actually told me, whatever I do, be the best at it. If that's what I wanted to do, be the best at it. And that's the way I looked at it. You know, and it wasn't that maybe he wasn't happy about it, but he never showed that to me and he never made me feel less than a man and less than a human being because of it. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of all of this, so you've got, now I, and again, I don't know when you think about your, your life, I don't know how much you think your childhood may have affected, you know, some of what you felt, but then, then you got married. I mean, you married a woman yes. and, and yeah, this becomes married, a whole a other chapter of your life that you know yeah yeah married in church uh, minister and all those things and the thing that's really important to say now even in regards to that how bad my marriage was my ex-wife is now my pastor and we're like really extremely close and uh, you know friends we get along we could talk and all those things because we were friends first and uh, we just had to go through a, a lot of traveling and journeys um, until we, you know, got along again, we have to go through those things in order to get there. But right. yeah, life, that's why I say life, you never can say what life is going to be. And that's why I take it a day as it goes, one day at a time, one moment at a time, you know, to, to do what I have to do and just live my life. And, and, and it produces a child, this relationship. Yes. And what is it like yes. when you let your dad know, because that's a pretty big moment in your life, too, when you let your father know that he's a grandfather, that you've produced somebody. What, what was that like for you to make that call? Oh, my, father was, my father was excited. He was really excited. You know, I remember him sending, you know, baby clothing and everything for, for Randus when he was born and all that stuff. So, you know, he was there. He was a proud grandpa. He was his first grandchild, you know. Yeah. So he was very happy. And there's even pictures, I think, might be in the book where... There's my son sitting on his lap when we did yeah. family portraits. Yeah. Yeah. 
Now, I thought that was a very sweet moment. I think another moment, too, I mean, when a lot of people, I think a lot of younger people that may not be aware of the truly rich legacy of your dad and where it started and all that, they know the incident. You know, they know they know the fire. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people know. Um, mm-hmm. There's a moment in the book where you get that call about what's happened um, out there in the valley on Parthenia Street. Uh, wh- what is that call like for you, Rich? Because you're young at that point. Obviously, you're probably... Yeah. What are you? I mean, 20, 20 years old or uh, so. No, right? I'm younger than that. I'm, I, I just I was I had been out of high school a week exactly. So okay, so you're maybe like eighteen. My, yeah, my, eighteen. My father came to my graduation, and it was a week later, the following Tuesday, um, when it happened. And I first found out by listening to it on the radio. Before <sighs> we received the call, it was on the radio, and I was driving in my car, and I remember hearing it on the radio first. Oh my goodness! What did that feel like? What What is that like horrible. when you hear news like that, that that comes in that unexpected? It's horrible. It's the worst feeling. The same thing almost happened to me when my father passed away. Um, it was like when he passed away. It was like if I hadn't have went home and received a phone call, I would have been there where I was at prior to that. Would have been there and saw it on the news. That's how and quick then, was the information was out there. Yeah. And and then when you found out about his accident with the fire, you're on a plane quickly. You 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 go to L.A. What's that like when you first get to the hospital? What are you thinking? What are you expecting? And what is it like when you ultimately go in there and first make contact? Well, it was it was chaos um, because the press and all those things and everybody who was there. But it was very difficult because you didn't know what to expect. You know, when you're hearing everything, you know, somebody's burnt from their waist up and everything, you're not knowing what to expect or anything. And you can't even comprehend, uh, especially at my age at that time, I couldn't even comprehend until I went in there and, and seeing him and not being able to speak and looking at him wrapped up and looking at watching, you know, flesh fall from his body. You know, there was just a horrifying experience that I'll never, ever forget. What's interesting, though, it really sets up one of the great comebacks in, in, in modern entertainment history. I mean, what your dad, you know, the, the re- rehabilitation um, to come out and actually do comedic material, which he was obviously always great about, taking his real life and turning it into mm-hmm. material. But this was sort of doing that on a whole other level. What did, what did you think of him as he came back and was able to go out to confront this, to talk about this, and to laugh about it? I thought it was wonderful for him to embrace it, for him to do it, the courage that he, that he used in order to do it. And a lot of times when you're doing things, when you speak of yourself, it takes away the sting of somebody else doing it. So regardless of what anybody does, comes after that and makes comments about it, you've already done it first. Right, so I think right. that took that bite and that sting off of that to where it wasn't, you know, you could joke about it, but yeah, he's joked about it. Well, you know, it almost made me wonder if how much it influenced you in terms of writing your book, you know, confronting things, owning things, being blunt about things. You know, is it a combination of your mom and dad or do you think one or, or do you think your dad influences you more in terms of this this sensibility of of being so brutally honest in your book? I think my dad really influenced me. Um as far as that and knowing the kind of person he was and who he was, that he spoke his truth. You know, good and bad, he spoke it, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to, you know, cower behind stories and make my, paint myself as a certain way, and I, when I wasn't. 
I wanted to paint a picture the way I was at that time and, that, and in that moment. Richard Pryor Jr. is talking about his book, In a Prior Life. Richard, what's the feedback been like so far from people who have read the book? What, what's, what are you hearing played back to you? Um, I'm hearing a lot of things that you've actually already stated, the, uh, the honesty in the book, um, how they feel that it can help people uh, for them reading it, um, how it's not just a story about um, a celebrity son, and it's not a story that's just bashing a celebrity, a celebrity. Mm-hmm. and it's a story about my life, and people are really enjoying and embracing that, and that's, what I, that's exactly what I wanted out of this book. Richard, we've got to take one more break. Can you hang in for a couple more minutes? I'd love to have one more brief conversation piece with you if it's okay. That's okay. All right. We'll be right back. My name is Chris Epting. My special guest today is Richard Pryor, Jr. We're talking about his brand new memoir called In a Prior Life, just out from Bear Manor Media. It's a terrific read. It's available uh, on Amazon.com, wherever books are sold. We'll be right back in a minute. My name is Chris Epting, and you're listening to The Moment. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit VoiceAmerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Epting, joined today by a very special guest, Richard Pryor Jr., whose brand new memoir entitled In a Prior Life is now available. Amazon.com and as well wherever uh, books are sold. Um, Richard, what? Uh, let's talk a little bit about your plans. Uh, the book is just coming out. What are you doing? Uh, are you doing uh, appearances, signings? How can people see you in person, maybe even discuss or do readings from the book? 
Well, right now I'm doing uh, a mini, mini, mini tour of my book. I'm going to two places where I used to live at, live at um, uh, Peoria, Illinois. I'm going there on April 10th, uh, which it happens to be my birthday. I'm doing a signing there. Oh, and great. then two days later, I'm going to uh, Des Moines, Iowa area. I'm going there because I used to live there and work in the bar there when I bartended back in the day. So I'm right. actually going there and doing a book signing as well. Um, just working on setting up, uh, uh, you know, book signing dates when people want to see me as far as appearing because I'm pretty much doing all this on my own. You know, sometimes you have, you know, they, you no longer see those big uh, publishing companies that I know, provide these, I know. those things like they used to. So it's pretty much all on your own as far as everything that you're doing. Um, so I'm doing that. And also what I'm doing now is working on adapting my, um, my book into a script uh, for a feature film and also for a one-man show. Where I'll play all the I, characters. I wondered if you were going to do that. This seems like it has a lot of potential as a show to, to show multimedia, to show images, to tell stories, to, to read from the book. I mean, it certainly feels like it would it would lend itself well to that kind of presentation. It's funny when you talk about uh, you know odd jobs you've had. You know, working at the uh, at the comedy store had to be interesting for you, and uh, it, it certainly comes off well in the book. You know what going to Mitzi Shore and, 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 you know, asking for work there and just being in that space where obviously your dad had worked many times. You got to know a lot of other comedians there as well, right? Yeah, that was a great, great time. Even though, you know, the drugs were there, yeah. the memories I have as far as working there and the process and all those things and being around the talent, all those things and seeing people were, when they were just starting out, like Chris Rock and all those people, the Wayne brothers and all that Seeing all that was a great moment in my life that, you know, I'm glad I can remember it because there's so many things that are gone out of my brain because of the drug use, but those things I remember. You know, I don't want to give too much away out of the book, but I will tease and say there is a crazy Sam Kinison story in your book that sort of spins <laughs> out time at the comedy store. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, you know, it's like every page you weren't sure what what you're going to hit on in this book. And the Kinison story I thought was just totally off the chart. Uh, yeah. as a Kinison fan myself, but, but again, your life has really been peppered with these moments where you are thrown into these just insane situations, partially because of your dad and other times just because, you know, your personal path has resulted in a lot of tumultuous moments and it's, uh, right. you know, it, it really is nonstop. Let's talk a little bit, Richard, about what's next for you. How, I mean, in addition to wanting to adapt the book into a screenplay, you know, in terms of your personal life, what did you, at this stage of the game, in terms of what you learned from writing your book, where do you go next? I mean, how do you envision the next few years of your life uh, as either an entertainer, as a writer? Where, where do you see things going? Well, my, my thing is to continue performing because I love performing, whether it's in front of the camera or, behind, or, or on stage. I love performing. I love singing. So anything that's going to allow me to have that creative process and that outlet, that's what I'm going to do. So I, you know, I took some time off really performing and things like that because I worked on this book for that year and a half. So now it's time since the, the book is, is out. Once it settles down, things settle down as far as the interviews and all those things, I can focus on performing again and, and getting back to what I love the most, which is being on stage and performing. I would think that going back to Peoria to do an event is going to shake a lot of old ghosts loose, huh? Yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. I, I'm interested to see how, you know, my hometown receives me. You know, there's a scripture in the Bible that says there's an, uh, 
the man is without honor in his own country. And so a lot of times when I lived there, you know, I never felt, you know, the love there, you know, as far as he's talented, can he, you know, can he act, can he sing? It was always kind of a thing, kind of the way they, you know, treated my dad a lot um, in the city, you know, because of his uh, lifestyle, you know, that he wasn't recognized and all those things. Things are turning around, but I'm interested to see if it's going to be the same for me. So it's kind of like a thing you waiting, waiting for that ball to drop. <laughs> to, to see, you know, you, you know you everyone's receiving it, but I'm, you never know. Earlier in our conversation here, Richard, you mentioned um, when your dad's passing, things were difficult in terms of, you know, access to him became kind of limited. Well, what was it like for you at the end of his life? Because you guys, there are some really wonderful photos of you and your dad in the book, uh, how you stuck by him after he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, of course, and dealing with all these different issues. But how tough was it at the end when it was the access wasn't what it had been before? I mean, that had to be a very... Very, uh, there had to be a lot of torment in that. It was the most painful period besides my mother's death that I went through in my life, not being able to see my dad and not being able to have contact with him, not even being able to talk to him. And I uh, saw him like the January prior to his death. Um, I went out there on a fluke, just had my friend drive me out there, went out there, and my sister Elizabeth gave up her visit for that month so I could see him. And it was at that time when, when you visited him, you know, that you were no longer allowed at the house. They would take him and put him in a van and take him to a hotel lobby. And that's where you had to have your meetings at. You could no longer do it in his home at all. And it was just a sad, 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 sad thing altogether. What I, my outcome though was better than theirs because I was able to actually see him at his home. Uh, for some reason, I'm not sure how that uh, transpired, but I saw him at the house. Telling him that my mother had passed was a very difficult thing. But then, you know, hugging him and telling him how much I loved him and hugging him goodbye, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. It kind of tears me up now because in my heart, in my soul, I knew that would be the last time I would see him. And he passed the next December. Boy, the thing you described... A minute ago with the arrangements at the hotel, I mean, it, it just seems like that was such a, uh, that had to be painful for all the kids that, that it had come to that, that there was, you know, now this kind of system in place where that's how things were done. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was horrible because, you know, we had unlimited access to our father, always uh-huh. had. And for all of a sudden now, you can no longer have access. And then they're pre- presenting these notes from doctors saying he can't have this visitor, can't have this, and can't do that. He was just alone. You know, he had just the people who worked at the house. Those were the people that were around him. You know, even when I saw him a few years prior to that, um, before they, they put the restraining order on me, um, all the people that were there were the, the housekeeper, and I guess the, her husband or something. It was just a weird situation, weird scenario to have to deal with. And seeing how, you know, his pictures, all the pictures that he used to have of us that I have in the book, all those were gone. Nothing resembling his family or his kids or anything was no longer present in his house. You mentioned a restraining order. Would you mind explaining? Because that alone, that just those words applied to this is such a sad yeah. commentary on how things were. Well, uh, I went out there to see him once and I had to call the police to get in to see him because... The housekeeper couldn't let me in. 
Then and you write about this in the called, book. Yeah. And then I called the, uh, called the police. The police come and she doesn't want to let them in. And they're like, man, you have to let us in. So they go in and do a wellness check and check on him, see if he wanted to see me. And he said, yes. He said, your father wants to see you. I go in to see him. He's like, son. And we sit in there and we talk and, you know, for a bit. And the two people are standing there against the wall the whole time. And I told him, I said, uh, did you know that the house you gave me when I had a house fire, did you know that Jennifer sold it? He said, no. He didn't know that. So then after our visit and everything, I kiss him and I leave after that. I only find out, I was never served it, but I found out that there was a straining order against me. And the straining order had that, you know, my dad is supposedly saying how much he hated me mm. and he couldn't stand me. And uh, that I'm there to cause problems and all this kind of stuff. It was totally fabricated, totally not right, totally not true of everything that was stated in the restraining order. But there you have it. You know, it was all because I went uh, above and beyond what she thought I could do and what I would do. The only thing she could do was lock me out of his life. And she did it. Amazing. Well, what if you're now, I would say siblings, but your dad had a, a number of, of, of children with a number of different women. You're, you maintain relationships with some of them. What's the, have they read the book yet? Have they given you feedback, Richard? My, what they my, think of sister, it? my sister, Rain, is ecstatic. She loves it. She loves what I talk about. She said, it's my time. You know, I should be the one telling the story because I'm the oldest. And to keep doing what I'm doing and stay positive, stay focused on what I'm doing and just continue to tell my truth. And that's exactly what I'm doing. That had to be, that had to feel really good to hear that from her. Yes, it did. Most definitely. Richard, what do you think it is about celebrity in our country that, that brings out, I mean, not, not only the best, obviously, but the worst to a degree, especially as a family member, you know, when somebody achieves a certain level of success and notoriety, it really does become a hard thing to deal with. Why do you think that is? What do you think it is about celebrity that, 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 you know, attracts some of the worst people that are there to really do harm to family members? Greed. Just money comes Plain down to simple. that. Plain and simple. Greed. Greed and notoriety. Uh, your 15 minutes of fame at whatever cost it could be. Well, I guess I guess that's uh, that's what you experienced, and uh, and again, I I give you a lot of credit for for not just overcoming, um, you know. The addictions, but the dysfunctions. I think those, right. you know, there's there's an addictive quality uh, in your story to all of the dysfunctions too, and and certain family members and the the struggle with parents and everything. And that's why I really hope that you know I would suggest I think a book like this, a story like this, it'd be great for you to present it at at you know places where people gather that either have drug issues or that have family issues. I do think there's a very therapeutic quality to being on it. To really being true to yourself, and I think that's sort of the the most uplifting theme of your book is finally becoming aware that it's okay to accept who you are. Right? That that was my right. main takeaway at the end of it is that it's okay yeah, to be love, yourself. I would, yeah, I would love nothing more than that to be be about my book to be about that. I would love nothing more than that. So hopefully that can happen. 
Well, I think it will. Like I said, you've got all of the pieces in place here. You've got, uh, you know, you, you did something very gutsy and very courageous. And I want to thank you for all the time you gave us today. Richard Pryor Jr.'s new memoir is called In a Prior Life. It's available now on Amazon.com. Um, I, I can't I can't recommend it or encourage that you read it enough. It really is a... Uh, uh, it's it's impossible to put down, but for the right reasons. You know, it's not, um, you know, Richard, to your credit, you don't throw anybody under a bus. You own your behavior. You confront your own behavior. And that, to me, is the testament of, of a truly successful, truly honest memoir where you, 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 you own what your own behavior and you take responsibility. And for that, I say congratulations. It's a wonderful book. I really encourage people to pick it up. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Chris. All right. That's Richard Pryor, Jr. My name is Chris Epting. In the last minute or so here, I want to remind you that um, you can – this show will be archived, obviously. You can hear our, this entire conversation with Richard Pryor, Jr., along with all the other conversations here on The Moment. If I can as well, uh, I have a book that's coming out in July. It's a memoir, sort of similar. It's funny. Richard and I are basically the same age, as is Leif Garrett. I don't know if you – Richard, are you still there? Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, I don't know if you knew Leif back in the day, but he and I have a book no, coming out. No, I didn't. His, his memoir comes out. It's funny reading your story. He 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 made the same decision that you made to be brutally honest and to confront the truth in his life. And his book is called Idle Truth, and it comes out in July. And I I, I think it's a great companion to your book because it's a uh, it involves a lot of family issues and a lot of drug issues, obviously, and. Uh, things, but it's but it's also there's a joy to realizing that it's okay to 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 want to be the person that you are, the man that you are. So we'll get I to more of that I can't wait to read later. it. <laughs> I'll get you a copy of it. But in the meantime, I want to thank everybody for listening. My name is Chris Sebbing. This is the moment where every week we get together with somebody very interesting, like Richard Pryor Jr. in this case, and learn about moments from their life. What we can learn about these moments, how we can strive to survive and, and be inspired by by these stories. So, Richard Pryor Jr., once again, thank you very much. Listeners, thank you very much. I will be back here next week with another edition of The Moment. I'm Chris Epting, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week. 